Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Learning from Cover Crop Failures, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Longtime no-tiller Steve Groff from Holtwood, Pennsylvania, has been at the forefront of the cover crop movement for several years as a founder of the Cover Crop Innovators, the developer of tillage radish genetics, and much more. Like all aspects of farming, Groff says that growing cover crops doesn't always go as intended. For today's podcast, we're sharing a recent talk Groff gave to his Cover Crop Innovators group in which he explains that how cover croppers react to failure is critical for learning and doing better the next time. Groff shares ideas on how to deal with several areas where cover cropping can go awry, including weather, herbicides, equipment, and management, and shares stories from his own cover crop failures. Well, hello, everybody. It's good to be back uh, again today. Today's topic is cover crop failures. Do you have a plan B? And we were just chatting a little bit here before uh, we started recording, and and someone said, is next week going to be plan C and the following week going to be plan D? And I said, well, that, that actually would be reality here sometimes. But I think we'll just focus on plan B today uh, So, uh, so be, be, because that's Probably most of us have, have encountered this at some point where things did not go as well as planned. And I see a, a very, uh, I guess you'd say clear fork in the road with those people who, when plan A does not work out, how they react then to that challenge or that lack of expectation or that failure, how they react to that is critical on either what they learn from it or or how they recoup uh, and maybe even turn out better than they even expected from plan A. So I, that's the reason I wanted to capture this topic because a lot of it's going to have to do with a mindset, but it's uh, some fundamental things to do. And I'm going to show you some examples from my own experience over the time, because believe me, I've had uh, I've had plenty of failures. And um, I just had a group um, from Europe in here at my farm this morning, and I was showing them some things. I said, you know what? I'm trying this here. I don't think it's going to work. It doesn't look like it's going to work. Uh, but uh, it's small scale. I can afford to lose it. Uh, but I'm also going to show you, uh, and it's those of you who have been following Facebook, about my uh, my big failure, I guess you would say, this year that's not turning out too bad after all. So that's a few things to lead into my topic today. Uh, let's get right into it here. Uh, what could possibly go wrong with cover cropping? And I could say everything could go wrong. And sometimes I think we as cover crop advocates 
we certainly want to expouse all the virtues of cover cropping and so forth. And that's all good. We need to do that, be positive and everything. But there's a reality out there that it doesn't always go as planned. And I listed some of the things here, big stuff that doesn't always can, can be influencing when plan A does not work. Of course, the weather is a big one. Um, the whole interaction and the use of herbicides is another one. Not having the right equipment or not having to know how to run the equipment is another one. And then finally, uh, management, which can kind of combine all the above there, but just simply management and knowing how to manage what you have in front of you, what what is uh, what is presented, be it with the uh, with the weather or with uh, any of these things listed here. So uh, some of the specifics that have been maybe fall into the plan B scenarios is like the annual ryegrass didn't die when I wanted it to. Or as in my case this year, the corn came up before burn down. What do I do now? Non-GMO corn. How am I going to control this cover crop? And I'm going to talk about that one. Uh, planning equipment inadequate. Just don't have the right setup in the planter. Or because the cereal rye grew so high, my planter can't handle that. Now what am I going to do? Or uh, maybe I got the wrong cover crop mix ratio. And that's kind of minor, but, you know, you learn from these things. And, uh, you know, you 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 move on. How you adapt and how you how you respond to this can either – make you frustrated at cover crops and you give up or you take this opportunity to see what you can learn. So um, I'm going to say that getting off in the right foot is is really important. Let's try to get plan A to work uh, so we don't have to do plan B. And it's kind of obvious, but part of that is understanding that there are challenges. Every single cover cropping farmer has challenges. Every crop scout, those of you in education, you got challenges out there. That's what you're there for. That's what uh, you're trying to help figure out, to do things better. Uh, so you need to be a compulsive learner. And, and, and you know, hopefully that will fend off some of the problems or some of the lack of expectations. Um, I've said this before. I've shown this slide before, but get inspired by the cheerleaders and the cheerleaders are are people that you listen to or read about that it's like, you know, these cover crops are so fantastic. I've used them on my farm, and they do all, everything but all but miracles to my soil. Yeah, that's, that's true. I get that. And, uh, and and we need the cheerleaders out there that are, that are cheering us on to say you can do it and everything. But you really want to follow the mentors, the ones who are practicing what you want to accomplish. Those of you who are in education, focus in on that farmer who seems to be successful, seems to get it right. Um, and and so, so what I'm saying by this opening part here is let's try to avoid plan B if we can. But plan B is going to happen, but let's try to avoid it so we don't have as many plan B scenarios. That was my whole point there in, in saying that. Now, there's a quote that I use sometimes in my presentations that I brought in here from Warren Buffett, and it kind of fits today. It's uh, it's better to learn from others' mistakes than to make them yourself. So um, 
it's kind of what we're talking about here today, but things happen. So in, in light of that, um, having clearly defined goals, I think is very, very important, very, uh, very fundamental to being able to, to, uh, understand what you're trying to do, regardless if plan A works or not. Uh, because when you start going to plan B, when something didn't work out, when, when the, um, the, the, the annual ryegrass did not get a complete kill, well, uh, we wanted to use that annual ryegrass for a cover crop because of all the virtues of it. But what are our options now after that? You know, does, does accent work as a post-emergence herbicide? And I'll just say, um, it can, but it probably won't kill it completely. So there's a lot of things there, but the clearly the identified goal is we really need to terminate that annual ryegrass somehow, some way. And just having that total commitment and learning all you can is, is vastly important. And um, the idea of having a mentor or a resource person that you are able to connect with, that you have a relationship with, those things typically happen, they're typically defined before you have a problem. In other words, you don't want to be like uh, – I'm figuratively speaking here, just scrambling on the internet to try to find the answer to your problem. Now, yeah, we got to do that sometimes, but when you're setting yourself up for success, if you have those one, two, three, or four different mentors, like I have here, Frederic Thomas from France, he's one of my main mentors um, in in learning and understanding and promoting cover crops. Um, I have a few people here in my state of Pennsylvania that I tap into. We run things by each other. Uh, so what do you think about this and so forth? Having that network is going to help you to be uh, ahead of the game, to give you a better chance of making plan B work. So what I'm trying to say here is set yourself up for success, even for a plan B. And, and, um, and, and as you, as you guys know, my kind of, my style is not necessarily to give out prescriptions for everything, but I want you and I want you to encourage those you work with to think for themselves, to be able to understand how to navigate challenges. So have that network in place, I think is critical to successful, uh, we'll say plan B. Okay, that's enough of the foundation here. Let's build upon that. Here is my oops moment of the year. See in the middle there, a tiny little corn spike coming up through, and you see surrounding it actually is triticale, and there's also some hairy vetch and some crimson clover and in, in this mix here. The plan A was, in my field, was to plant the corn and then spray out the cover crop with glyphosate before corn emergence. Now, if you've been on this, uh, on these webinars the last couple of weeks, you know it's been very wet in my area. And so I'm going to try to maximize my cover crop. I'm going to let it go until the day before emergence. Now, again, this is only one field I'm talking about here. I can easily spray it. You know, takes me an hour to do it, and I'm done. Well, what do you know? We have four straight days of rain, 
and oops, the corn's coming up. Oh, by the way, it is non-GMO, so I don't have that backup option. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't plant GMOs. This, that would be a great reason here to eliminate this, maybe. I'm just saying it's a non-GMO corn. I'm actually growing it for a neighbor for silage. He gave me the variety. That's what he wants. So I feel a little bit more responsible here now to pull this off because it's his seed. I'm growing it for him. What do I do? And so I um, put out something out on Twitter. I put something out on Facebook. Some of you guys probably saw it. I talked to my local chemical rep. I talked to a few other people I know. And part of plan B here of trying to kill it, and there you can see a picture where part of it was going in. I, I happen to have a weed wiper. In other words, where you can uh, use sponges that, that just wipes the, the taller plants there and and put you can use glyphosate there. So it's one way to help terminate the existing cover crop. Well, I also uh, knew that that's not going to get near everything. The stage of the corn at this place, at this stage right here, was about two or three leaves high. So um, there is uh, a herbicide called Acuron, which is popular around here, that has some activity on some grasses or mainly broad leaves and also is partly a residual, what's in that mix. So I sprayed two quarts of Acuron, which uh, 2.7 quarts, I believe, is the, is the top rate, so two quarts. And I spiked it with half an ounce of Accent to try to help control uh, my grasses that I can't get with the weed wiper. Now, right away, you're going to say, man, that sounds expensive. It is, okay? This was not plan A, but I got to do something about killing this here or at least slowing it up enough that the corn can can grow. Now, um, one of the things that I did have going for me is we were wet and it stayed wet. So I wasn't really robbing moisture from the corn. So if you look close in this picture, you'll see some of the hairy vetch is dying. That would have been from the Acheron. But, boy, that that uh, that's triticale there is still pretty green. And it did make me nervous. I will say that. I was a little worried uh, that this was actually going to burn down an, enough for my corn. But it did stay wet, so... In that regard, I wasn't as, uh, as as worried, I guess you'd say, if it would have got dry and it would have been taking moisture from me. So this very morning, uh, I went out and took a picture here, and this is how it looks now. I'm, I'm breathing a lot easier. This is 15-inch corn for silage. You can see that my cereal rye, or triticale in this case, is uh, is dying now. I think everything's going to be just fine. Uh, but... This It took quite a bit of, it was phone calls, it was texts, it was tweets, it was Facebook, came up with this plan, and uh, this is what I did for my situation. So you see, I had relationships out there, I had means of being able to get advice, and yes, there was different, I got all kinds of advice on Facebook and Twitter about what to do. Um, I, I will say this, that one of our members, um, Brent Larson from uh, Iowa also had a similar situation. They used Corvus uh, to take out um, to take out rye cereal rye on corn that had been emerged on a non-GMO situation. So that would be another option. He says it worked. So I wanted to take you through that scenario of something that is just I'm 
I'm, I'm, I'm right with there. So uh, the importance of having a group, having a network to tap into some of these things, I think is vital to make this happen. Now, let's just talk about an experience I had with um, an equipment issue. So all these big covers are great, but when you start using spoked-type closing wheels, they can start to wrap. Now, I just took this picture here of about two years ago when I had this issue, and this is no fun when you have to either stop every once in a while and pull that out by hand or actually go back home and get the air wrench out and take each closing wheel off and take it out. That is definitely not a fun day when you have to do that. Um, so I I, uh, I wanted to, and you may have seen this before, but there is deflectors out there now that you can get that solve this problem. And I feel one of the best ones is one from Yetter. Uh, they, they cost 46 bucks a pair there. They're very big, they're wide, they do the job. So if you have a spoke-type closing wheel, this doesn't need to be a problem anymore. Um, and and But I, I need to take you back uh, about 12 or 15 years ago when I first had the Martin spiked closing wheel. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's when I started getting into bigger covers and boy, do they wrap pretty quick. The cover crop doesn't have to be much higher than two feet, maybe three feet, and it starts wrapping. So what I did, and this is the key here, is I contacted um, uh, Martin, um, the people who sell the Martin spading wheels, and actually talked um, to Howard Martin, the founder of Martin, and he made these deflectors for me. So... I actually found these this morning in my shop, on my big pile of stuff I no longer use. And any cover cropper, no-tiller usually has a pile of stuff sitting around they no longer use. I found these, and it was pretty cool because these may be the first deflectors ever made specifically for spoke-type closing wheels. Howard made them for me, special, sent them to me. And they worked okay. I'll just say that. They worked okay. They solved the problem for there. But as as you can see uh, from the, the previous slide here, what we have now is much better than that. But the problem was addressed. I didn't say, oops, can't plant into tall covers anymore. And I, I found a remedy. I went to the source at that time. I went to the top, if you will. So I just want to use that as another example of don't give up when you have a problem, when plan A does not work. Start thinking about who you can contact, who you can call, or figure something out yourself. And so just in me reflecting back, it was kind of cool to think how far we've come with a little problem that was annoying to now that problem is basically fixed. We have pretty good deflectors out there now if you're planting into tall covers and using spoke closing wheels. Uh, some of you may have seen this picture before. This is when I attempted to plant corn and sun hemp at the same time, essentially. Um, uh, and basically, the sun hemp grew right up with the corn and definitely suffered some yield loss there. I don't think I gained a lot from the nitrogen that the sun hemp might have produced for the corn. Don't do this again. So in this case, plan B was... Don't do this again. 
Uh, I literally had to end up harvesting at one row at a time because that sun hemp, the way the stalks were, no matter how I set the combine, it would just snap off and it ran through the combine. It was like hay coming out the back. Um, so there are some times when plan B is never do this again. Now, that doesn't mean I'm never going to try sun hemp in corn, but I would do it later. Um, if, if to, to get the corn ahead start. So I could say that was a take-home lesson there. But so sometimes plan B is simply don't do it again. Been there, done that, you know. So, okay, one more uh, scenario to run through here, and then I'd like to open it up for questions or suggestions or, or whatever you may want to talk about. But in uh, 2016, I started growing forage because uh, I had an opportunity to sell to my Amish neighbors. This would have been after wheat. And I took a cutting off, and then I the, the second cutting started growing, and I thought, wow, it would really be nice to have planted my hairy vetch and triticale in July underneath that sorghum sedan and sun hemp. So that when I took a cutting off, then I'm all ready to go for my winter annual cover crops. I wouldn't have to come back and reseed. So in 2017, I did just that. And we actually talked about this uh, two weeks ago, or was it last week maybe, about using forages as cover crops. But I wanted to use this. Here is where plan A did not quite work. So plan B was a rather simple fix. So I planted sorghum sudan, sun hemp, crimson clover, hairy vetch, and triticale. Planted five different species. Now the first two were designed to take, be taken off the cutting, and then the last three were designed to grow through the winter, in the fall and then through the winter. And, but, because I was going with a forage, I planted the, I had this forage rate kind of as a forage rate. And my hairy vetch, triticale, and crimson clover, hardly any of it survived. So because of the shading there, it just didn't survive underneath that canopy. I had to come back in and replant. Now, what you see in the picture there, you're saying, well, I see some stuff growing there. Well, most of that is sorghum sedan, and actually there was some oil seed rape I had thrown in there, too. You can see a little bit of that growing, but not much. There definitely was not enough hairy vetch or triticale that I was satisfied with to keep that ground covered in the following uh, over winter. So uh, the lesson learned from that is if I want to do forage and if I want that higher seeding rate for forage, I probably can't put these two different uh, plantings together and make it work. Now, if I'm not planning on taking a forage, I would keep my seeding rates low on the sorghum sedan and sun hemp to allow enough sunlight to get in to reach the to reach the the hairy vets and triticale and and clover was down there so they could just hang on and survive uh, until the fall because uh, the first frost will take out the sorghum sedan and sun hemp. So I know that might be a little complex and hard to follow what I just said said, but my plan B here is basically fine tuning a practice that I wanted to do. So I uh, shared some specific examples there uh, of Plan B uh, of the way to think about this and 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 uh, just going into a scenario 
is is important to have that in the back of your mind in case you have to rely on it if things don't work out. We'll get back to Steve Groff in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Steve Groff. So I'm going to uh, unmute uh, everybody, so I wouldn't mind hearing a question or comments on this. And I would also welcome anything sp- specific uh, that you want to ask uh, that we could discuss. So uh, how, does anybody have a specific question that would uh, relate to our topic today about how do you navigate Plan B or this is your scenario, and what would I recommend? Two things kind of popped into my head, and I'll, I'll go with the, the first one that I've been kind of um, chewing on in my brain a little bit. Um, Lots of times you talk about you have your plan A and you have your plan B. Mm -hmm. And a couple different times there you kind of talked about um, some of the times of failure or looking at these types of things and and seeing if there's a failure or trying to get to the next success out of that. And um, I think that's a really important thing that we have to Mm -hmm. be comfortable with talking about. So I'm going to take this kind of, like maybe beyond what we talked here about yep. and go because in conventional farming and working with farmers that are not in soil health systems, yeah. talking about getting through a failure and being okay with it and doing it again or trying something again the next year mm-hmm. is a really hard pill to swallow. Understood. Um, and I think that's a really important thing that we have to focus on is instead of talking about things as, well, that was a failure this year, mm-hmm. we talk about it more as, well, that was your plan A and you got to let's what was your plan B and mm-hmm. and get people a lot more comfortable with that because mm-hmm. conventional agriculture that we have now doesn't it's too cookie cutter and it doesn't like failure. We don't have failure and failure yeah. is bad. There's yeah. never a learning experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really big thing that we have to deal with. Yeah. Well, well said, Stephanie. And I'll just I'll just add to what you said. What I will what I my tactic when I hear a question uh, from a, we'll say a conventionally minded farmer, someone who's kind of like um, lo- looking looking into the cover crop thing. If I if I go back to that farmer, I'll say, well, what do you do when it's? And I'll just use a, a real a real example here. What do you do if it's June the fifth and you don't have your corn planted yet? Do you switch to soybeans? Do you mud it in? What do you do? Because that is a very real question that can occur from time to time. And uh, the same thing can then be applied to cover crops because cover cropping is, is you know, it's 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 like it's just like uh, anything else in agriculture. And I think farmers tend to put cover cropping in a different category. Like it's, and this is why I said that early on in my talk that there's a lot of positive spin out there in cover crops, and that's awesome. That's great. We need that. Uh, but there's also reality, and farmers tend to think that oh. I'm going to plant these cover crops and it's going to do magical things. And um, that's will happen sometimes. But when a farmer is challenged or thing doesn't go as, 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 as well as he would like, just, you just have to, you have to know how to say this, but ask a farmer what happens if you have a drought? 
Uh, what happens if you have a wet year? Does that mean, oh, I'm never going to plant corner beans again? It was dry and I got half a yield. I'm never going to do that again. Well, they wouldn't think of thinking that way. But that's the way they treat cover crops sometimes. And that's why, you know, I'm pretty famous for saying treat your cover crops like your cash crops. That fits right there. So um, that's very relevant, Stephanie. You brought that up. And sometimes you just have to help farmers how to think about it. It's agriculture. It's it's we have weather, you know, all kinds of things can go wrong. And I listed a bunch of them at the beginning here. But does that does that kind of help you think through to help give it to help the conversation with people like that? Is that helpful? I I think it is. Yeah. And I and I think that that we as a as a cover crop and soil health advocates, when we're talking with these farmers, we have to really we have to really be realistic ab- mm-hmm. about those right. those types of things, I think. And like you said, mm-hmm. I think we have to try to be knowledgeable to help those people find mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. farmers and advocates and things like that because, you know, we can try to be, like you said, be a cheerleader and be a mentor, mm-hmm. but we can't. We can't. We have to have a large group of people, I think, to again mm-hmm. support these farmers as they're making that switch, oh, yeah. and and uh, and we just have to be out there. I think uh, that's the biggest thing that I've learned too is that when people are having plan problems with Plan A and looking at going to Plan B, mm-hmm. to, uh, if you can, if you're in the same state or close by, right, mm-hmm. try to mm-hmm. go to that person's place. Yeah. That's what right. I'm looking at trying to do because talking to them over the phone is good, oh. but nothing is like seeing that person's field and being Absolutely. there with them. And I think that's a really important thing. That's, that a, we, that's we a very good on. point, a very good point, Stephanie, and I will I will second that heartily. There's there's nothing like going and seeing firsthand, um, and I I can tell you story after story about about that. So I wholeheartedly agree. I'll just say here that Eon uh, uh, just mentioned in the chat here that fail can be an acronym for first attempt in learning. So oh, I like and, it, and that's that's an attitude right there, you know. And that's why I said partly too. I I totally agree. There's an attitude toward that, and and you have to have that perspective. Uh, that is important um, in in being successful. That you, you know, what do you learn from this? I know uh, Jennifer. I, w- I wouldn't mind hearing from you. You're you're an educator. Um, how do you handle people's failures? How do you? What's the what's the little things that you've found to be helpful in in handling a failure or Plan B uh, situation in, in your line of work? Well, and I was just thinking about that because this year, it, because we've been so wet here, you know, mm-hmm. like it seems like. A lot of cover crops got away from people, maybe. Um, I, you, there's a couple of guys that I'm following pretty closely. I'm out to visit their fields often. And, like, so at first it took um, cover crops a long time to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems like that's finally getting, like, you know, they rolled something down and it popped back up. And, mm-hmm. you know, the herbicide that they used didn't work very well. And I was really worried. And now I'm just wondering you know, we can kind of look to to the next year. You know, mm-hmm. there, like you were saying, there's some things that you can't really do anything about. But, right. you know, um, I think it'll be interesting because the thing that I see now is that the emergent corn isn't very even right. or not as even as um, we're, we're kind of told that it should be, like, you yeah. know, that evenness is, is a real key to a good yield and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all I can do is, is sort of follow along with people and see mm-hmm. if that holds true at mm-hmm. the end of the season. Um, mm-hmm. 
for if it comes to the end of the season and it wasn't, it turned out to be not so much to worry about and try and document that so that you can tell the story about what happened next year. Cause if Mm -hmm. you get to the end of this season and everything turned out, a-okay, mm-hmm. then you'll have a tendency to forget how, like, yeah. scary it looked at the right. beginning of this right. season. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, Lisa, same same question to you, Lisa. You're, you work with people all the time, and I'm, I'm sure most of your job is helping people with Plan B, probably. So <laughs> what, what do you have to add to the conversation? First, I want to address something that Jennifer said about, you know, how tough the corn looks right now. Mm -hmm. And this comes directly from moderating a farmer panel on Friday and um, asking Dan DeSutter, farmer from northwestern Indiana, about his crops that quite honestly look pretty tough compared to his neighbors. Okay. And Dan had a wonderful statement, and it was, you know, I don't care about leading the first lap. (laughs) <laughs> here about leading the last lap okay. and time and time again every year it proves out that i'm ahead of the game on the last lap okay and so he walked through the agronomics of why that corn was looking a little bit tough right now and then into where the cover crops were actually going to be providing the nitrogen to that crop later on in the season okay so um, i wish i could i could say everything he did verbatim. I'm not nearly. I am not. Do not have that eloquence. But um, well, yeah, I know. I know Dan. That's myself really interesting, and, though. Go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, I just that's really interesting, though. Like that's a well, kind of a neat philosophy I, to be able to share. And I think the point being made here by by all of you so far is uh, let's not let's not let's not prejudge what things look like now because typically. I'll just say no-till, typically cover crops, typically soil health stuff, typically never looks the best early on. I think we all probably agree with that. Typically, it comes on later is when it really shines, and that's exactly what Dan DeSutter was saying. Uh, I love that because I'm a NASCAR fan. You want to (laughs) leave the last lap. So uh, I think I I wrote that one down here. That's a keeper. Oh, I I like that one. (laughs) So, Steve, the other thing I'm going to add, and this, again, comes from that field day and other experiences, is um, we really need to make sure that the farmers we're working with has somebody they can Mm -hmm. feel comfortable turning to. Mm -hmm. One of the gentlemen on that panel, he really didn't have that support until that day and realizing that he could ask Mm -hmm. Dan Mm -hmm. and the two other farmers, and they would be more than willing to help him. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I think that's one of those things that we really do need to be aware of and support well, those, especially the newer farmers. And, and that's that is part of the role of educators uh, to to be the bridge. I mean, I see myself filling that role. Um, and I'll just put this out there. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but um, here in Pennsylvania, we got linked up with the Stroud Water Research Center. And I'll just be really brief, but there is money out there that will help to fund and actually actually compensate some farmers for some of the, the peer mentoring because you have someone like, I'll just use your example of Dandy Sutter. He's been around, uh, people know him, and he's willing to talk to a couple farmers, but when it gets to be 10 to 20 farmers, then he needs to decide, am I a farmer or am I an educator? Or, you know, it'd be nice to get a little compensation once in a while for some of my time. So I don't know if those of you are, are, are involved with uh, maybe some funding sources that you could help some of your farmers to compensate them a little. 
there's a successful program here in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, w- I would be willing to tell you about that. Uh, it's it's working well. It's um, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that right now. But uh, it, it it allows the best farmers the to to go a little bit beyond just the normal phone or phone call a week or two uh, because they're they're actually paying them quite well. Um, so just for whatever it's worth, this whole topic today, I think it really fits uh, in order to have people being led through that plan B. And I'm, I'm glad you uh, support what I shared there, the importance of setting up a team, a mentors, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, setting up a network is key to make this happen. Very few do you see a maverick uh, out there that's just going to really make it happen. There are exceptions, but uh, anyway, so other follow-up comments? And, as, and I'll add to that, Steve. That was a comment that uh, one of the other farmers, the host, Rick Clark, really wanted to send home with that field day, awesome. is that nobody does this on their own. Yeah. And that was the closing comment, the closing question of the panel was, mm-hmm. Have you guys, did you do all that you have accomplished on your own? And to a T, they were all shaking their heads no. That's, well, I, I've never actually thought of that before, but I, I immediately think that's a big no for me. I I mean, I, I'm pretty innovative. I'm pretty pioneering, but, boy, I've learned most of what I know from other people. Uh, I've just been able to apply it to my farm, and uh, that's excellent. I wrote that one down, Lisa. That's good. <laughs> That's great. Uh, other comments. Uh, see, John's on John Johnson, uh, my neighbor farmer here in Pennsylvania. Do you have any comments uh, on how to handle Plan B? Maybe Brian. I see Brian's mic's on. Brian? Uh, you know what? I just had one question about uh, when you said about, uh, like, with your conventional corn, because uh, obviously here in western Pennsylvania, we do a lot of conventional corn, okay. and that's one of the scary things that the scenario that you outlined where, you know what, all of a sudden the corn's up and I couldn't get sprayed. Yeah. Do you think that the, the risk-reward of trying to get that extra five or six days out of that cover crop versus having to go to that plan B, um, would it be better just on the conservative side to, to just terminate that when the weather was right and then get it planted? Well, I'm still debating that, Brian, because uh, I, I go back and forth because I'm thinking I don't really want this to happen again. Actually, it's looking good, but the the, the price. I mean, I'm thinking economics. It's I didn't price out. But it's like quadruple the cost I had to do just because of one day late. Quadruple the cost, right? And that's just a killer. Um, and it's not the end of the world. I'm don't get me wrong. I'm right. happy it's turning out, but you know, I think well, when did it ever rain four days in a row? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't happen very often. So I guess my answer to your question, Brian, is uh, I'm probably going to I, – I, I would have done it different this year if I had the opportunity, but I'm not promising you I'll do it different next time because the chances of this happening again are very remote. Or I'm – instead of – and, again, my, my, my scale here is all relative to how big you are, but instead, instead of doing – you know, 50% of my corn that way, which I did, maybe I'll just do 20% and uh, to, to wait to that last second, so to speak. I will say this, that in a scenario where it's dry, I would have been killing at planting or before killing if it was – before planting if it was dry. Okay. But to answer your question, um, I'm willing to roll the dice a little bit sometimes, um, but I'd probably be a little bit more conservative, just a little. <laughs> 
especially with the the non-traded conventional right. coin, because that that is a huge part of our business. Yeah, but, uh, that just throws that little like I said, you don't right. have that option to right. go back in the you with know, the glyphosate and, and terminate. Right. Exactly, exactly. And again, as I stated, this was this was for neighbor. I'm actually personally trying to get away from GMO corn anyway. I'm not like against it. I'm just saying I just am because uh, I'm growing a lot of stuff for the neighbors now, and that's what they want. So it works for me. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I appreciate your time again today. Thanks for your support. Uh, don't forget to go over and chime in on Facebook and uh, continue the discussion. Thanks to Steve Groff and Cover Crop Innovators for allowing us to share this talk. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.